I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, November 26th on CBC Radio. As a temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas continues, we'll bring you the latest on how the terms of the truce are holding and what may come after the pause. After that, in a world rife with conflict, Thompson Highway says we need to remember to laugh. The great Cree writer will tell us why humor may be the best medicine in tough times. COP28 kicks off in just a few days and we'll tee up the UN's annual climate change conference with a look at Canada's track record heading in and why global conflict must be part of our climate conversations. And later on, from Bitcoin to NFTs and game tokens, we'll add up how the meaning of money is changing. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. The shaky truce between Israel and Hamas is now into its third day. So far, 26 Israeli hostages have been released, with a further 13 expected later today. In exchange, 78 Palestinians held in Israeli jails have been let out. And in a separately negotiated deal, 15 hostages originally from Thailand and one from the Philippines who were held by Hamas have also been freed. Meanwhile, the pause in fighting has allowed trucks carrying humanitarian aid to make their way into Gaza and for the civilians in the Gaza Strip to get a short reprieve from the war, which is now into its eighth week. Greg Karlstrom is the Middle East correspondent for The Economist. I spoke with him earlier this morning. Hi, good morning. Here we are, day three of four of this deal. It's holding despite almost collapsing yesterday. What's your assessment of how it's all going? It is holding. The question that everyone is waiting to see the answer to now is how this next phase of the the hostage and prisoner exchange will go, uh, whether it will be like the one on Friday night, which uh, more or less went according to plan, or last night when the release of hostages from Gaza was delayed for hours because Hamas accused Israel of violating some of the terms of the deal, both around the amount of humanitarian aid that was going into Gaza and also uh, exactly which Palestinian prisoners were released. So the next round is meant to begin at four o'clock local time, about an hour from now. uh, And we'll see whether it's smoother than yesterday or Mm. not. 
So we've got glimpses of the hostages released by Hamas. Hamas has put out some video as they were transferred to um, vehicles by the the Red Cross, the Red Crescent. Um, My assessment of seeing them is, I think, you know, just based on a a, a few moving parts of a video, but they look confused and shocked, understandably. Do we know any more at this point about how they're faring? No, we've heard some initial statements, both from the Red Cross and then from uh, Israeli doctors who examined the hostages once they were brought from Egypt back into Israel. And physically, uh, they've said they, they more or less seem to be okay. But I think the bigger question, as you say, is psychologically after 50 days in captivity, after being held uh, probably underground for the duration of that time, uh, some of them are finding out. I mean, we've heard stories uh, of hostages who have come out and, and weren't aware that their relatives were killed during the massacre on wow. October 7th. And they're finding that out for the first time uh, when they reunite with with their surviving relatives in Israel. So uh, yeah, physically, it does seem like they're OK. But psychologically, uh, I would imagine they're they're all in, in a very difficult place right yeah. now. Of course, and a long road ahead. Um, on the other side of this deal, Israel has released 78 Palestinian detainees um, with another group expected to be released later today. This is all part of this 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 deal that's been negotiated. Many of the Palestinians released are um, women and teenagers. There have been jubilant scenes on the streets of the occupied West Bank. How are their returns being seen? I think there's a couple of things to point out. Uh, one is that on this list of women and children uh, who are being released. I mean, there are some people there who have been accused of or convicted of uh, serious crimes of attempted murders, stabbings, things like that. But there are also people who have been held in what Israel calls administrative detention, uh, which means they have been held without charge. And, And Palestinians can be held for months, sometimes for years, uh, without being charged. And, and so some of these people, they've been locked up, but they haven't been convicted of anything or even accused of anything. I think the other thing that's been notable to watch is the reaction in the West Bank. Uh, there have been a lot of people trying to give Hamas credit for this. There have been a lot of scenes of Hamas supporters celebrating in the West Bank, uh, wearing headbands, waving the group's flag, uh, and and obviously giving them, I think, a political boost in the West Bank. At the same time as in Gaza, it seems like much of the population is furious with them for Mm. bringing this war upon Gaza. But uh, it is nonetheless, I think, helping their political standing in in one part of the Palestinian territories. Yeah, it's notable to mention that seven Palestinians in the occupied uh, West Bank were killed yesterday, more than 50 since the beginning of this war. So the violence continues there. But we have to talk about Gaza, of course, because there is respite for the civilians there, maybe short-lived during this truce. Some of the people who had been displaced to the south, and there are hundreds of thousands of them, have been heading back to their homes in the north this weekend, despite Israel telling them not to. What have they returned to? Uh, They have all found nothing. Uh, They all went back to see what was left of their homes or to look for family members or friends who they've lost touch with uh, over the past seven weeks. As you say, Israel told people not to make that journey from the south to the north. Uh, We've heard that at least two Palestinians were killed by Israeli troops and around a dozen more injured while trying to make that journey. But uh, thousands, according to the UN, were able to, to make it from the south to the north. And every single person that I have spoken to has said that uh, they found nothing. They found nothing is left of their house, nothing is left of their neighborhoods. Uh, you know, they went back hoping that the house might be damaged, but they could at least salvage 
some possessions and know that there was something to go back to after the war. And what they have found is that entire blocks, entire neighborhoods have been flattened. They have not been able to find, uh, in many cases, uh, relatives who they were looking for and, and cannot get a hold of. Um, so yes, they're they're. This is a respite, and this is a, a needed respite for Palestinians in Gaza. But I think being able to see the extent of the damage in the north is also driving home that even if they survive this war, they're really not sure what is left of their lives afterwards. Yeah. And so as they're taking stock of, of all that, and it's very difficult for civilians, Hamas has also had a break in fighting. And there's a, been a lot of talk about it using, you know, these four days um, uh, to regroup for when the fighting resumes, something that Israel says it, you know, is going to continue. What might that be looking like for Hamas? It's a good question. We're not uh, we're not entirely sure. I mean, I think there are two questions that that they will be thinking about now. One of them is that it does seem like once Israel sent ground troops into Gaza on October 27th, uh, certainly all of the Hamas leadership, but also a significant number of their fighters. Uh, went from the north to the south because the Israeli troops who have been fighting in the north have encountered much lighter resistance than they would have expected. Now, there's still a large Israeli military presence in the north. Uh, there are still plenty of underground tunnels that the Israelis have not been able to seal the entrances to. Uh, and so I'm sure Hamas is using this time to try and figure out tactics to uh, attack the Israeli soldiers who are still mm-hmm. in the north. But the bigger question for them is Israel is signaling that it wants to go into southern Gaza as well, that it's going to send ground troops there. Uh, and Hamas, I would imagine, is is planning a much more uh, intense defense of southern Gaza, mm. let's say, than, than they did in the north. So they're estimated to be between 30,000 and 40,000 Hamas fighters. Fighting forces never like to give out their numbers of like how many people they've lost. But this morning, Hamas says the group's top commander in northern Gaza, Ahmed al-Gandur, has been killed along with three other commanders. How big of a blow is this to Hamas? Well, it depends on who you ask. I mean, there are some people within the Israeli army who will tell you that uh, they have killed a number of senior commanders, not just this one, but uh, others in recent weeks who were in charge of the Hamas rocket launching capabilities and, and things like that. Uh, and that they have done real damage to the operational leadership of the group's military wing. There are other people who will say, you know, armies throughout history have gotten hung up on body counts and have gotten hung up on on uh, killing top leaders of militant groups, only to find that those groups manage to endure and, and that what they are fighting here is not just a militant group, but also an ideology that has broad support. Um, I think what we have seen is that Hamas does retain some capability to fire rockets at Israel, but not on a significant scale. So uh, I think there has certainly been damage done to both their infrastructure and their uh, leadership and, and personnel when it comes to firing rockets. At the same time, uh, Hamad Daif, the group's commander, the head of its military wing, uh, has not been found yet. Yahya Sinwar, the head of its uh, political office in Gaza, also has not been found yet. So the top, top leadership of Hamas, uh, as far as we know, is is still alive and still directing the war. And when you say top leadership, that's a top leadership of Hamas's armed wing. Of course, we have the political leadership in Qatar. And you've been writing about this um, kind of the different parts of Hamas over the last number of days, uh, Greg. The political leadership is are the ones who negotiated this truth. So where is Hamas's real power center at at this point? It's increasingly in Gaza. 
these days. There has always been a split between the internal leadership in Gaza and then the external leaders who are in uh, Qatar, who are in Lebanon, and, and some of them in Turkey as well. But uh, historically, the case has been that the external leaders are the ones who present Hamas's face to the world, who negotiate, who conduct diplomacy, and they take decisions. So Ismail Haniya, who is ostensibly the leader of Hamas, uh, he is in Qatar at the moment, uh, negotiating indirectly with the Israelis and, and various other parties. But what's happened uh, over the past few years and has really been accelerated since October 7th is a shift in power to Gaza. So at one point, for example, during the hostage negotiations, Israel wanted a deal for 100 hostages. Uh, Yahya Sinwar, the leader of Hamas in Gaza, wasn't willing to agree to 100. He was only willing to agree to about 50. The Hamas leadership outside of Gaza was pushing him to consider a larger deal. And so at one point, he simply stopped answering his phone. He wasn't mm. responding even to his own political leaders outside of Gaza. And the deal that ended up being agreed by both sides was for 50. It was not for 100. He didn't budge and, and no amount of pressure from outside can convince him, convince him to budge on that. So would you call this infighting in Hamas or a fractured Hamas? I think it's fractured. I mean, there, there has always been a feeling when you speak to the political leadership in Gaza, uh, they're always a bit resentful at the guys who are sitting outside who are in very nice hotels and in Gulf countries or enjoying nice restaurants in Turkey, while the ones who are inside of Gaza are living under what was before October 7th, a very stifling Israeli and Egyptian blockade. But there was always a hierarchy and a chain of command. I think that has fractured, as you say, since the war started. And the ones outside the country really, even though they are the face of the group to the world, don't have nearly as much influence now. Okay, let's talk about Israel. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's approval ratings are in the dumps. They're very, very low and continue to be. Um, but with these hostages being free, um, you write, you know, he will take credit for reuniting these hostages with their families, but not too much credit. What do you mean by that? Right. The, the problem for him is that this hostage deal is not popular with some of his right-wing base. They didn't want to negotiate at all with Hamas. They certainly didn't want to negotiate a deal that would only return about 20% of the hostages in exchange for a truce and in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners. They think Israel is making far too many concessions here to secure the release of these 50 or so hostages. Netanyahu initially was not in favor of this kind of hostage deal. There was some infighting within the Israeli war cabinet. Uh, some people wanted to do the deal. Some people wanted to keep fighting and, and hope that they would get a better deal as a result. Netanyahu didn't really come down on either side of that. So he, he didn't push for the deal. And so last week, there could have been a cabinet vote on this. He didn't bring it to a cabinet vote. What ended up happening was the families of the hostages uh, have been building political pressure on the government. They have made themselves into uh, a very powerful political force in Israel. And that was enough to convince Netanyahu to override the concerns about his right-wing base and agree to the deal earlier this week. But he's still very worried about how all of this is going to play out on the right. There's some speculation that this four-day truce um, might be extended. That's just speculation at this point. We'll see what happens over the, the coming hours. But what happens Tuesday morning if it expires and there's no extension? Right. Tuesday morning, Hamas will have a decision to make. They have the option under the agreement with Israel to release an additional 10 hostages. And every time they release 10 more hostages, uh, they get another 24 hours of truce. Now, they will still have about 190 hostages 
after the four-day period of this uh, agreement is over. So if they want to, uh, they can extend the truce for days, for weeks, by releasing 10 at a time every day. And I think they have an interest in doing that, because the longer they can extend this truce, uh, the harder it will be for Israel to restart the war. There's going to be more and more international pressure on Israel to cease fighting, which obviously is not what Israel wants to do. If the truce expires, I think we go back to uh, certainly bombardment of, of the north, and increasingly Israel has been bombing southern Gaza as well. Uh, ground troops are going to go back to looking for tunnel entrances and rocket launchers and, and those sorts of things in northern Gaza. Uh, and then they will begin preparing for uh, whatever ground offensive they're going to do in the south, which I don't think will look quite as big as the one in no the north, but they are gearing up to send ground troops into southern Gaza. Greg, thank you as always uh, for your assessments and analysis of all this. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Greg Karlstrom is the Middle East correspondent for The Economist, and I spoke with him earlier this morning. For the latest on the Israel-Hamas war, go to cbcnews.ca. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. So it can be difficult to talk to kids about what's happening in the world, especially these days with wars, civil unrest, not to mention personal challenges and tragedies. But Thompson Highway wants to make it a little easier for all of us. The renowned Cree author, musician, and playwright has a new children's book out. It is called Grand Chief Salamu Cook is Coming to Town, and it is a musical picture book that follows a young rabbit named Weeskits as he tries to help his brother win some healing juice that could treat his sister-in-law's cancer. The competition is controversial among the rabbits, and at one point the police have to intervene. But Thompson Highway uses silliness and humor to tell the story, and he also uses original Cree songs that he wrote, like this one. Thompson Highway, good morning. Good morning. So that is a bit of the national anthem of the Republic of Rabbits. They're singing in Cree. What mm -hmm. are they singing about? Oh, Kitaski, you know, Ski means uh, earth. Or land. So, Ketaski, no, that means our land. Uh, this is our land, uh, and we'll always be, it'll always be our land, and we are here. You know, so, so, it's something along those lines. Yes. And so, what do you hope kids who are going to read this and hear that song, and, and parents were, are going to take away from hearing that song, and, and songs in Cree? Mm -hmm. I always say, I love, I love, a lot of my music, is uh, my lyrics are in Cree. Because I, it's my mother tongue. I didn't know any other language before I was born. Before I was born. <laughs> I didn't either. <laughs> when I was born. Uh, I, I didn't learn English until... I didn't become fluent in English until I was about 17. And my parents didn't speak any English. My, my, my older siblings, some of the 11 to 12 children, they didn't speak any English or French or any other European language. So I grew up in Cree and other native languages, I have to admit. But I want your children, young, young people, to uh, hear these lyrics and, just, and, and I hope that these... The, they sing them, they, they repeat them. Kids do a lot of that. I have grandkids who do that with the radio and we're going down the, road, the freeway. They sing along to Brazilian songs. I play Brazilian music a lot these days for a reason. But here they are driving down the freeway singing in Portuguese, mm. Brazilian Portuguese. And that's how you, you, where you start uh, teaching Cree to, kin, uh, to people is when they're, when they're young, when they're three years old, four years 
old. They absorb it like 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 so quickly, and uh, it's amazing. And uh, so, and as, and the the theory is, and I believe it totally, the older you get, the harder it gets it is to. Uh, to learn other languages, so that by the time you're 40 and you haven't learned a second language, it's too late. Mm. There's a muscle inside your, the brain that, I don't know what you'd call it, but uh, and some kind of auditory mechanism that lets you absorb sound. Uh, and the younger you are, the, the more muscular that muscle is, and the easier it is for you to absorb other languages. So when you're a child, that's when you... Uh, Start learning, t- mm. teaching kids how to speak. Mm. T- t- second, third, fourth, and fifth languages. And so this book is filled, this town that the story tells is full of speaking and singing rabbits. Mm-hmm. But it is about so much more than that as well. How would you describe what your book is about? Well, I, uh, it's about rabbits. <laughs> uh, it's about a rabbit community, <laughs> a republic of rabbits, where there's thousands of rabbits living in this community, this imaginary community. Uh, I was we uh, we have a beautiful house in Gatineau, Quebec, and uh, a rabbit came to our backyard one time and basically gave birth to two little rabbits, and and I was I was stuck at that moment with my writing because I had just signed a contract to, to write this book, this children's book that I'm speaking about, and uh, there it was. This this rabbit came to my backyard and gave me the story. So I wrote a story about about her community. And that's what, that's what it's about. It's about the love and the life and the drama that takes place in this community, totally fictional community of rabbits. Yeah. I suppose if it was a duck that showed up at your, at your yard, it could have been about ducks. <laughs> it, it could have been. And eventually I do want to write about ducks. Yeah, you know? because like, it's I a love, metaphor, I love animals. right? Yeah, absolutely, yes, totally. And, and as a metaphor for real life, right? You mm. could put ducks. You, it's a human story, really, at the end of the day. This children's book covers um, heavy topics, um, mm-hmm. ones that we all face in life, illness and death. Mm-hmm. Why was it important for you to incorporate those darker aspects of life in a story made for kids? I didn't. Uh, it wasn't a conscious choice. Uh, first of all, I don't, I'm not a children's writer. I, I write adult stories uh, in my plays and in my novels and whatnot. And... Uh, so when it comes to children's uh, literature, I'm not a, a great expert, and I and I sometimes run out of ideas, and I do whatever I can to keep the story together, keep the story going. And uh, but I never read. Really, it wasn't really a major point with me as I was creating the story out of thin air. Uh, it, it was a, a subconscious choice. Uh, I think it, it comes to me that I come, I come from a, a community of, uh, where there's a lot of death. I, uh, I was born at the time in uh, history where there, was no, uh, there were no hospitals up north, there were no funeral homes, there was none of that stuff. And, so, uh, and people, because of the harsh living conditions, living in minus 50 weather in the Arctic, and I was born in December, they had to resort to enormous measures to keep to keep their children alive. And most people back in those days, it was normal for people back in those days to have 12, 14, 16 children. I have an uncle. My young, my father's youngest brother had 22 children. You conducted the Quebecois themselves, and they did, back in the 50s, had 14, 16, 20 children. The record is 27, I oh. hear. And uh, so in those days, there was no birth control, and there was no medical uh, assistance anywhere. There were no clinics, no no antibiotics, none of that stuff. So uh, the infant mortality rate was very, very high. So the average family who had 12 kids would lose about half of them yeah. as babies. And so that's what happened now is we had 12 children. And my, I'm the 11th of 12 children. And, by t- and we, my, my parents lost five of them. Half the family uh, wow. was died as children. And so death was a regular, uh, a regular happening in our community, in our lives. It was a very, very... Uh, 
normal thing to die, which it is. Well, ultimately, death is a very natural phenomenon. We all get there sooner or later. And then, of course, I saw people, kick the, my neighbors and my, my cousins and all this. I, I know people who lost their parents when they were four years old, when they were two years old, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and w- what would you be like today if you lost your, your, your parents when you were four years old, you know? Mm. So uh, we have to talk about these things. They're, you know, important enough to talk about them. And, uh, and kids these days don't, uh, really don't understand death as a phenomenon. They have to ask, where did he go, you know? Where did mom go? Kind of thing. And you have to give, come up with an intelligent answer. And uh, we're getting there. I can't do it all in one, in one go, but I, I, I'm trying to contribute to the fact that, that we, uh, death is a normal part of life. But ultimately, death, the death in the story is very, very minor point. The story is about sense, having a sense of humor, having a sense of musicality, having music in your heart, having a, you know, a living, breathing heart to begin with. And uh, that's what the story is about. The story is about life mm. and fun and music. Mm. So let's talk about that because you have said like your favorite sound in the world uh, is laughter. And it is vitally important to who you are, Thompson Highway, mm-hmm. but also in the stories you tell. Let's talk about laughter. Why is this such a deliberate thing that you're, you, you say we all need and you were trying to contribute to that all? Well, I live to I live to laugh. You know, I uh, I, I grew up, I was born and raised Catholic, and uh, and we just and what how they teach life. The, the basically the central story is uh, lesson in the in the in that system of thought is we were born to feel guilty to apologize for a crime that we never committed. So we're basically uh, committed to a life of depression. We, we were born to be depressed. And I completely rebel against that idea. In, in Cree culture, it's a totally different rhythm. It's a, it's a different system of thought. You, you, uh, Christian, Christianity is about monotheism. It's a, it's a system of one God only. And that God is male. In, in Cree culture and in other, in other native cultures, there is, it's, it's not a monotheistic system. It's a, a pantheistic system. Then, then there's polytheism, which is a system of many gods and goddesses like you have in India. Uh, basically, the, and the central mythological figure in this mythology, this dream world, so to speak, is a, is a clown. And that which is where the language is so funny. The, the Cree language is the most hysterically funny language on the face mm. of the earth. The first syllable you utter, and you're laughing to beat the band already. And so basically, it comes, boils down to, uh, to the fact that we were born onto this planet not to feel depressed, not to apologize for a crime that we never committed. We, he put us, he, she, first of all, just, the, the, there, is no, there is no gender in the Cree language. She put us on this planet for one reason, and that reason is to laugh. Hmm. which is why the language is so hysterically funny. And as soon as you switch over to English, you stop laughing automatically. Okay, wait, and give me an example, because you say, look, Korean language is full of laughter. So give me an example. Okay, uh, my, uh, my grandchildren, I'm a grandfather, I have two, two grandkids, a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old. Uh, and, uh, but I'm giving them Korean uh, lessons here and there whenever I can. So we have, they have a dog, and the dog, and how you say puppy, a, a little dog, a young dog, is chipotitz. What? Chipo cheats. Chipo cheats? Yeah, there you Chipo go. Cheats. Yeah. yeah, it's cute. It's fun <laughs> to say. Chipo cheats. Know. It's cute, A and B. The <laughs> syllables make you laugh. They bounce off the tongue <laughs> and they dance. And the whole Cree language is like that. Can I give okay, I'll give you a Cree sentence, okay? Can I give me with need and pack it now? So I'm sitting up bits of gosh, but you ask me, get the math and speech when I give pack it now, so I'm gonna lapat pagasimat. You know, that kind of lapatin is a pudding. Uh pagasimat means to boil. You boil the pudding, etc. 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 But that's the rhythm of the Cree Wait, language. You were just, just telling me to boil pudding? 
swimming? That was your example you basically, gave me? Yeah. I, well, basically, what I said was, Kanagi uh, means at least. At least uh, I, I don't let. Ma is negation. Neither. That's me. I. Baget now means I don't let them. Uh, children. My children. Look at me while I'm boiling the pudding. <laughs> it's a silly, it's a silly, 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 silly time. I, invented yeah. my, I invented myself and I use it in my writing regularly. And but that's the rhythm I employ. The rhythm I employ most most of my writing, and it's a funny. And it's a, fun, I, I read about funny things. They make people laugh, uh, and I believe it wholly. Yes, and if you write people, when people ask me what is my religion, you know, ask anybody what religion they, they come from or, or they still believe in it or whatever. My religion, when it comes right down to it, is laughter. I live to laugh. Hmm. I sincerely believe that God put me on this planet to laugh, A, and B, to make people laugh. And the reason why, and one of the reasons for that phenomenon is that I believe from the bottom of my heart that people are at their most beautiful when they Hmm. laugh and when they smile. There's nothing more beautiful. So I make people laugh so I can see them bare their teeth (laughs) and laugh (laughs) like mad. And And that's what artists are here for, is to make people, you know, think about these things. And so that's what I am. I'm a writer. And so, you know, as you as you tell parts of your life story, Thompson Highway, you know, as you say, look, uh, I was born at a time. You're literally born in a snowbank in I, was, Manitoba, uh, right? Yeah. And one of the yeah, one of the reasons I did that was because people didn't know, like Southern people, most uh, Canadian, ninety five percent of Canadians know the the part of Canada, a, a very nice strip of land along the American border. Mm. People don't realize that uh, uh, that. There's another 95 percent of the land that is that is, has just us, and in those days, people were there's this lifestyle that we we had, where people were everybody, uh, well half of the population was born in snowbanks. Being born in a snowbank is not unusual for my time, you know. Yeah. Further north of us, there are babies who were born in houses made of ice. They're called igloos, you know. There are such cultures in this country, and I want to tell the world about that. About that. And then, as you mentioned. Five of your siblings died when they were very young. You went on to um, residential school with your brother, Rene. Mm -hmm. You lost Rene, and I'm sorry for this. Um, Well, thank you very much. Yeah, he was so important. Uh, He was a gifted ballet dancer. He died of um, an AIDS-related illness in Mm -hmm. 1990 at the age of 35. I I, I say all that about your life. I know you've had great joy and and all other things in your life. But as you talk about laughter, um, Thompson, what I'm wondering is... You say, like, uh, my, my religion, quote-unquote, that I subscribe to is laughter. Is that also because it provides you um, great healing? Well, that's what laughter is for. It, it, it provides healing for everybody, not just for me. You know, we all encounter negative experiences. We all encounter tragedy at some point or other. We all get depressed from time to time, even to the point of being suicidal. And we see suicide around us. Uh, it affects some members of our family. And uh, but it's it's a la- if anything heals those wounds. It's it's laughter. You have to get back yourself back to the state of laughter, and uh, it's a survival mechanism, not just for me, but for the world. Mm-hmm. Everybody is like that. Nobody comes out of this uh, being a total winner. We all get depressed. We all get lonely. We all become sad. We all cry. All those things. And and the only thing that's going to put us out of pull us out of there is to laugh mm-hmm. and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh until you cry. And that's why we do it. I, I cry. I laugh when I, I, I laugh so hard when I laugh that I cry. And I hope you do too. So when your grandkids, I think you said they were 10 and 12. Yeah, I know mm-hmm. I have that right. Oh, yeah. So when they say, I don't what do they call you? Grandpa? I don't know what they call they, you. Oh, they call me Grandpa Tom C. Isn't that cute? Grandpa 
Grandpapa Tomsi. Oh, Grandpapa Tomsi. Oh, I That's like that. I'm going to call you that. I'm going to introduce you as Grandpapa Tomsi. I love it. I love um, it. Okay, I'll give you your last name, for instance. It sounds very Cree, okay? My last yeah, name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, but it sounds like... It's, it sounds it's very fast. Close to that. It's, it's, it sounds like Chipotitz. <laughs> Pia Chipotitz. You know, that's your last name. If you call me Grandpapa Tomsi, I'm going to call you that. <laughs> See, see how you're laughing? <laughs> see how you're laughing from the gut? And I'm laughing and almost crying because... <laughs> yeah, exactly, because you laugh so hard, you, you, you bring yourself to tears. And that's, a, and that's what your name is. Your, your real name in Cree is okay, a Pia okay. Chipotich, which okay, means Pia puppy. Pia, is asking... Pia, Pia Puppy. That's, a, that's your Cree name. There you go. I just christened you. You know what? I Thank you. Uh... I will now forever be known um, as that by a lot of people. So yeah. um, thank you. And ah, <laughs> spell it out, okay? Spell it out. Chipo, C H I P O O, Chipo Cheech, C H E E C H. Chipo I'm going to start signing off oh, that. Chipo Cheech, CBC News. Tell Thompson how to give you permission to. And you know what? Even you, as an interviewer, as a journalist, you are learning Cree from me. I mean, if it's just a few words, but I mean, you speak Cree already. You know, Winnipeg, Manitoba, say this, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Shikutami, Quebec, Canada, Ottawa. You know, that's yeah. all Cree. Yeah, well, Welcome. I grew up in Saskatchewan, so yeah, I... There you go. I know. Saskatchewan, you know what Saskatchewan means, eh? Uh, you tell it me. Means, uh, it means, that don't forget to boil the pudding. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what? Exactly. <laughs> See how you're laughing? It's okay. Uh, okay, I'll tell you, I, 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 I say this to, uh, sometimes as a joke. And, and when I'm in Alberta, I'll go, and Edmonton, Alberta, too, that's Cree. And they'll say, what, what does it mean? And I say, uh, Edmonton means remove it. And Alberta means it hurts. Okay? So Edmonton, Alberta, from my perspective, means remove it. It hurts. And the, the, the question being, what hurts? And what's, what's it doing there if it hurts so much? <laughs> and then we laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. Okay, let's get back to these grandkids of yours, mm-hmm. Grandpapa Tomsi. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we were talking about, you said, like, laughter is sort of the medicine for the world, right? Mm-hmm. And for people yeah. who are hurting. So, you know, they're 10 and 12. They heard about a lot of things that are mm-hmm. like kid things. But then also they live in this, you know, world with the climate crisis and, and war and all these things. So when they say, Grandpapa Tomsi, um, how do I, like, where do I find the laughter in all of this? How do I Well, it was a French, first of all, you were slipping to French, which is another kind of, another language, which does not, does not laugh anywhere near as much as Cree. Mm-hmm. And same with English. English plummets you right to the very bottom of your being, you know, with uh, depressed, depressing thoughts. You know, what's happening in the world right now is truly, truly depressing. And one of the reasons why it's so depressing is because we're, we're telling these stories in English. You know, hmm. if you were to start, start talking talking about them in Cree, you would be laughing so hard you wouldn't have time to get depressed. You honestly wouldn't. Interesting. Yep. So you say, "Listen, kids, learn Cree. You'll laugh. You'll laugh your way through life." Yeah, you will. And just just to, just to use, repeat that as an exercise. You know, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Chicago, Quebec, Ottawa, Canada. Welcome to Canada, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to our beautiful land. Let's get back to these rabbits yeah. in this book. Uh, yes. <laughs> why did you want to include music along with this book? Because I'm a musician. I'm a piano player. I know I look, if you see me, I'm, I look like an accordion player, but I'm actually a piano player. And uh, uh, I was, I have a, I'm a trained classical pianist. Yep. I have an extraordinary musical training. Uh, I have a degree in music. Uh, so therefore, I'm, I'm actually one step away from being a musicologist. I know my music inside out. And uh, so I'm, another obsession I have in my life is music. Music. Musicality of language, the musicality of 
music, musical instruments, you know, plucking a violin or stroking a, a harp, you know, all that sort of stuff. That's that's beauty. And that is the most beautiful thing that that, that God ever created, so to speak. And uh, so I listen to it as at every opportunity. One of my great obsessions is music on YouTube. You can listen to any concert on the face of the earth. And I'm going to... Uh, we're going to Vienna, for instance, in in uh, March, and I'm going to go to specifically with the intent, uh, purpose of lis- listening to the, one of the great, the, probably the greatest symphony orchestra on the face of the earth, which is the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, mm. which we're hearing under the baton of one of the great, the world's great conductors, a man by the name of Zubin Mehta. So I go to the ends of the earth to, to for for listening opportunities like that because of my obsession with music. People are going to read your book, and they're going to listen to the music that accompanies it. What oh, do you, yes. What, yeah, Please what do, you, do. Yeah, what do you want them to kind of walk away with? I want them to be singing Korean walking down the street. Hmm. And that's what they'll be doing. Yeah. They, will, they really, really will. Thank you. How do I say thank you in Cree? Oh, it's a long word. I don't know if you can get your tongue around it, but I will give it to you anyway. But uh, even that is you, funny, You okay? have to speak slowly uh, so I can okay, try Okay. Kinana. Kinana. Skumitin. Yeah. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. And that's the nature of the Korean language. It makes you laugh at the most depressing things on the face of the earth. And we do. We laugh. And I'm going to spend the entire day laughing today. And I'm going to laugh about the fact that I met a woman today called a beautiful woman <laughs> called Pia Chipotis. <laughs> now, there's a laugh right there. <laughs> listen, uh, listen, the number of ways people have mispronounced my name over the years. I'll take cheapo cheats any day. <laughs> the Cree people when you're out there, I know in Saskatchewan, will love you for that. They will laugh themselves to tears. Thank you, Thompson. I appreciate your time so much. And I appreciate your time too. Okay, take very, good very care. Okay. You too. Cheers. Bye. Thompson Highway is an author, musician, and playwright. His newest children's book is called Grand Chief Salamu Cook is coming to town. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. So Black Friday is done and dusted. Cyber Monday is tomorrow. And if you've been spending your weekend poring over product reviews and comparing prices only to be left feeling frustrated, you are not alone. Amanda Mull covers consumerism for The Atlantic. And she explains, while it may feel easier than ever to be a smart shopper, the tools that should help us often end up leaving us even more confused. When I was a teenager, I would go to the mall and try on a shirt and like it and get a Jamba Juice on the way out and be on with my day. The mall isn't a place anymore. The mall is everywhere. The mall is in your purse. Black Friday, and especially Black Friday online, um, very, very recently, has really metastasized into something that takes up like its own chunk of the calendar itself. I've been receiving emails about Black Friday deals probably starting around Halloween. Thousands of Black Friday deals are coming to Best Buy. This Black Friday Deals Week, let the deals come to you. It's not always possible to be optimally smart, even uh, if you're really dedicated to the cause. Shopping is very confusing these days. The options available, especially online, are so vast and so confusingly arrayed that it takes a real dedication to details and to figuring out what it is you're being marketed and why you're being told certain things or shown certain things in order to be smart about your decisions. The grand promise of online shopping was that the consumer would have access to more information, more options, and be better able to educate themselves about what it is they're they're looking at and what it is they actually need. It should also theoretically lead to greater levels of price transparency and comparison. That's not actually how it has turned out. 
What you get is really just this deluge of information. 15 product photos, a description, technical details, what something is made of, how many volts it is, a star rating, an array of user reviews, probably some sort of summary of like, this many people thought this thing ran big, or this many people thought this thing was well made. You get all of this sort of like data crunched and given to you that way. All that data comes on just one product page. There's a point at which, a scale at which, information becomes sort of like not useful to the human brain. It becomes overwhelming. What these platforms do really well is provide an amount of information that is ultimately more confusing than it is helpful. Retailers have a real incentive to obfuscate things. When you're looking at Amazon, for, for example, everything looks basically like it's sold by Amazon, but in reality, more than half of the products available are sold by some sort of unseen third party. Because on Amazon, what you find is a bunch of brands that are sort of just nonsense letters smashed together. And those brands are generally used by manufacturers, wholesalers, or distributors in other countries you're not really able to understand or evaluate or get an easy contact with. So things like that, these sort of layers of middlemen that uh, exist online, the ability to show inaccurate images or AI generated images or images that have been photoshopped in some way or to steal images from an entirely different product and then send a dupe or a counterfeit or something like that. All of these things just create layers of confusion. Everyone's a winner with free returns on eBay+. Plus. Yep, the only provider with free returns. That's why we have free returns for up to a year. When they were trying to onboard you into online shopping and convince you of, of their charms, what they started encouraging people to do is to order a bunch of stuff, order a bunch of different sizes, order different styles, order different lengths. And if you pay for it up front, we'll send it all to you. And then you just send back whatever you don't like, and we'll take it back. No questions asked, full refund. Don't worry about it. All of those behaviors lose money for retailers. They've got this set of behaviors that is really problematic, and they haven't figured out how to stop people from doing it any other way. Statistically, the percentage of major retailers online that offer free returns as sort of a standard has started to drop over the last few years, and it looks like it will continue to drop. And that's because retailers are trying to sort of like discipline this behavior in consumers. They'll charge you eight bucks for shipping, they'll charge you a restocking fee. And all of this is sort of intended to make people think twice about like, oh, I'm going to order three sizes, it'll be fine. Or like, I want to get free shipping, so I need to order 20 more dollars of stuff, but I'll just send it back, whatever. They're trying to sort of like reduce those behaviors at the margin, which means that free returns are a little bit more difficult to come by. I think that the way that return policies and shipping policies and refund policies are currently set up in retail causes us to make a lot of mistakes as consumers. Uh, what you need in a checkout process from a consumer standpoint is friction. Having to pay for returns, having to pay for shipping, having to get out your credit card to manually enter your data 
that's all friction in a shopping process. And the presence of friction is like good and healthy from a consumer standpoint. There should be plenty of opportunities for you to slow down and go, okay, what am I doing here? Is this actually worth it? Do I really need it? Do I really even like it? Payment processors, retailers, all kinds of companies that are involved in the sale process have gone to great lengths to remove any and all friction that they can. Here's the only three kitchen knives you'll ever need. I tested four of the best-selling air fryers on Amazon, so you don't have to. Here are 10 of the best true wireless earbuds you can buy right now. First of the Now online, there's a lot of review reading, looking for recommendations, looking for intel, looking through TikTok to see if people like things that you're considering buying. We've been asked to shop a lot more and a lot more frequently. Thinking about shopping and pursuing, you know, a particular thing you want to buy, I think it takes up a larger and larger part of people's consciousness over time. Online shopping has like given us a lot more work sort of ambiently. And then once we've sort of tired ourselves out, <laughs> then, you know, you just eventually get irritated and buy four things on Amazon and figure that you'll just return the three that you don't like. I write so much about shopping because I think consumer culture contains a lot of visible, understandable case studies in how our material reality and our day-to-day -day lives are changing and why. That includes like how technology changes our daily life, how corporate power changes our daily life, how global logistics changes things, all kinds of different phenomena to which we are subject in all the areas of our life are like really visible to even the most average person in how it is they shop and what is offered to them and what the experience is. It helps situate people within the systems that they already exist in. What is on your holiday wish list? I need a stock pot. It's funny, I was actually looking at them like right before I logged onto this. Ultimately, it's a stock pot and I don't think they vary all that much from one to the other. I can boil chicken bones and uh, leftover onion peels just as well in any of them. But I will do like an hour of reading about it for no reason. Almost certainly. <laughs> <laughs> that is The Atlantic's Amanda Mull speaking with our producer, Andrea Huang. So now over to you. What's your experience navigating the online shopping world been like these days? What do you love and loathe about it? And do you have any stealth strategies you're using this holiday season. Talk shop ing with us by sending an email to sunday at cbc.ca. The climate is changing, so are we. I'm Laura Lynch and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions Podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. 
Each year, tens of thousands of politicians, environmentalists, and lobbyists gather to discuss the future of our planet and what more should be done to help save it. COP28, the UN Climate Change Conference, begins this coming Thursday in the United Arab Emirates. Canada will be among the 197 countries participating. Catherine Harrison's a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia, whose research focuses on climate change and environmental policy. Catherine, good morning. Good morning. So this is an annual conference. What are the big issues you're watching for this year? Um, there's a few of them. Uh, the, the Paris Agreement is inherently an iterative process where instead of making commitments once and for all every five years, the countries that signed on to the agreement are expected to increase their ambition. Um, and then the next time that's supposed to happen is 2025, two years before that, they have what's called the global stock take. And that's happening this year. And the idea is to check how we're doing, how far we've come, what the challenges are ahead, and basically an opportunity for course correction. So this is the first time there's been a global stock take. So it'll be interesting to watch. Um, climate finance and loss and damage will also be uh, a continuing uh a continuing high-profile issue and probably one with a lot of divisions. And um, I imagine there'll be a continuing battle over what sort of language is included in the final decision in reference to fossil fuels. Mm. Okay, so there will this be this global stock take, but let's you and I take stock of how Canada's been doing. How does it, how do we stack up when we take stock? Well, Canada has been in recent years very constructive in the international climate meetings. Um, by various accounts, uh, Canada played a, a important role in that breakthrough in getting agreement to establish a loss and damages fund. Um, uh, also played a role in in trying to muster the hundred billion dollars per year in global climate finance. But our own record is um, not looking good uh, compared to other um, OECD countries, for instance, we have seen much greater emissions growth, while many others have seen their emissions going down. And we also have the largest um, implementation gap. And what how the UN defines that is, if you compare what emissions you would expect from our current policies in 2030 with our target, there's a 27% gap that still needs to be closed by tightening the ambition of our policies. The U.S. is at um, 19 percent and the EU is at 9 percent. So we have the largest implementation gap among um, the G20. Hmm. So this is these, uh, this commitment that Canada affirmed last year, uh, one of the targets. This was reducing our country's oil and gas industry's methane emissions by at least 75 percent by 2030, so in seven years from now. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying, look, we're not doing very well. Right. Um, methane is one we've, we've been doing relatively well on. Um, it's it's uh, a more cost-effective way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The oil and gas industry is, you know, somewhat on board with reducing their um, methane emissions. Um, what we have seen, though, is really significant growth in emissions from oil and gas production. Those have 
pretty much doubled since 1990. And also from transportation from, you know, Canadians have shifted from smaller sedans to light trucks, uh, minivans and SUVs. And so even though cars have become more fuel efficient, our overall transportation emissions have gone up. Hmm. Okay, so let's use one more measure of how our country is doing. This past week, the UN's annual emissions gap, that report was published. It, as you say, it found that Canada, um, you know, is not doing faring as well as, as it, it might be or should be. It has the largest gap between rhetoric and action when it comes to implementing climate change policy. Why are we doing, do you think, what we say we will? Because we're saying we're getting there. We're saying we're committed to it. And yet the evidence shows something different. Oh, yeah. Um, and that that emissions gap report was called Broken Record. And it would be an appropriate um, title for at least, you know, the first 25 years of Canadian climate policy where, you know, starting in 1990, Canadian federal governments announced bold reduction targets. Um, and then they just never did the things that needed to be done to reduce our emissions. So in the meantime, emissions kept going up, they would announce a new target. I do think significant changes happened um, in the last eight years, when the federal government started to actually adopt some significant policies, carbon pricing, phasing out coal fired electricity generation, those methane regulations, um, we were able to follow the US lead on vehicle emission regulations. So we've bent the curve, it's flat and maybe starting to go down a little bit, but we need new policies um, that have been promised, but are overdue to really drive emissions down further. So then the question is, why do we keep not doing that? Hmm. Okay, let us talk about an existing uh, policy, um, one that has been very controversial. Uh, that, of course, is the carbon tax um, hot debate, um, more so in recent weeks with the federal government's announcement of a three-year carve-out from cri- uh, carbon pricing for heating oil. So the goal, Catherine Harrison says, um, is to financially incentivize people to move towards renewable energy. There's a lot of criticism from politicians, from premiers, from the leader of the opposition. Canadians are divided over their support for the carbon tax. How might this political blowback affect how the federal liberals prioritize climate change, especially given where they're sitting or seem to be sitting at least uh, in the polls? Yeah, um, that remains to be seen. Um, the I was surprised by the by the carve out, and um, there were other ways of addressing the cost of living, especially because the carbon tax contributed a relatively small share of the um, rising cost of living, even for those using um, heating heating oil to heat their homes. Um, the I think it's it's not just the recent politics. If, if you look back, that that uh, carbon pricing policy has been contentious. It's been fought by the Conservative Party since the Liberals introduced it in 2015. And we saw similar politics before that um, in British Columbia in 2008. Um, and I think there's a couple things going on. One of them is that you know, regular Canadians are not familiar with a carbon tax and that it's it's not about raising money, it's about incentivizing change. So they're skeptical about whether it works. Because it's visible, they tend to exaggerate how much it's actually costing them and how much it's contributing to um, the rising cost of living. And in my own research with colleagues, we've found that the vast majority of Canadians underestimate how much money they're getting back mm. in federal tax provinces in the rebate. So there's a certain amount that's just human nature 
But on top of that, we've got opposition politicians, especially um, the conservative, current conservative leader and his predecessors that are really um, ex causing uh, an exaggerated sense of those things. So those who vote conservative are more likely to have a greatly exaggerated sense of how much they're paying, to much to underestimate how much they're getting back, and even to be resistant to um, changing their opinion when they're provided with accurate information. So there's human nature, but our really divided partisan politics have been exaggerating um, those areas of misunderstanding for quite some time. Yeah. And, and then the other thing, which is also a thing that is being exploited or at least highlighted, I should say, um, uh, in, in the politics of our country are... Um, is the cost of living crisis, the, the climate action measures, the, the carbon tax. Sure, but it's all happening at this time when we Canadians are facing this harsh affordability crisis. How do you see the willingness of Canadians to support climate change measures playing out while so many people are struggling, you know, just to get by and the economic outlook uh, in the coming months and, and few years doesn't look super rosy? Yeah, I, I really worry about this. Um, I think Canadians have very carbon intensive lives. We live in big houses that are typically heated with fossil fuels. We drive the least fuel efficient vehicles on average in the world. And so it's not just industry that resists change, it's you know regular Canadians. Hmm. And um, I think that there is, um, I think there has been this sense that when when politicians say we'll be better off if we act on climate than if we fail to do so, and that is true, I think a lot of folks have interpreted that to mean it's going to be free. In fact, it's not going to. We have to pay mod modest costs now to avoid much greater costs in the future. It's like saving for a pension or um, paying for an insurance policy. But I think people haven't really grasped that things are going to get worse. And especially because they have this exaggerated sense of how much the carbon tax or other climate policies are costing them. You know, it's human nature to think, well, we'll just stay the way we are mm. today. Um, but the way we are today isn't isn't on the table anymore. The, the planet is going to continue warming until we get to net zero. Except, Catherine, you know, I, three months ago, Canada faced this summer of record-breaking wildfires and temperatures. We saw what happened in BC. We saw what happened in the Northwest Territories. Three, four months ago, we're all talking about like, oh my goodness, we need to do something. This is the reality of the climate crisis. And here you're saying, you know, people have short attention spans. So how important is, you know, that public ongoing recognition and support when it comes to pushing for stronger climate policy? Um, it's it's much stronger than it used to be. Historically, um, Canadian voters would pay attention to the environment when the economy was doing really well, and then when the economy took a turn for their worse, the worse, that attention would plummet. Um, one of the things we've seen in recent years is that climate change and environmental issues continue to hover in the top few top of mind issues, even as other issues come and go. It was number one in 2019. That is certainly not the case anymore. But I think that the question will be how much it stays in the public consciousness and whether voters take into account the, the credibility of different parties' climate plans 
when the next election comes along. I mean, I've been pretty discouraged by my fellow British Columbians' short memories about, you know, the heat dome when over 600 British Columbians died, mostly alone in their homes mm. in a three-day period. And, and then folks seem to have just moved on um, from that to, to at least some degree. Let me ask you about industry, because as you say, Canadians uh, maybe don't realize how much individually we are contributing to uh, the climate crisis. We know the oil and gas industry is a major contributor to the Canadian economy. It's also the, the single largest producer of emissions in our country. It's been an ongoing discussion for years, uh, ongoing tension, frankly. Are we making any real progress when it comes to industry? Um, some, some sectors have reduced their emissions. The oil and gas industry has been a persistent problem and actually contributes most of Canada's emissions growth in recent decades. And it has resisted um, policies to drive down emissions. So whether Canada come even comes close to meeting our Paris Agreement target to reduce our emissions 40 to 45% below 2005 levels by 2030, is going to rest very heavily on the forthcoming oil and gas emissions cap. That's something the industry has been lobbying hard against, promising to get to net zero in 2050, but resisting um, deeper cuts before that. And of course, they've had support of the, uh, the governments of provinces that rely on oil and gas production economically and for their own government revenues. Hmm. Okay, I got to let you go very shortly, but... Um... These COP conferences are often criticized uh, of all talk or little talk, no action. What does a successful COP28 look like for you in your books? On this one, um, you know, I'm not hugely optimistic for a COP that is chaired by the um, CEO of an oil company, but um, I've attended a couple of COPs and have really been struck that it is, there are tens of thousands of people who are deeply committed to action on climate change. So I would like to see some progress on the loss and damage fund. Um, I would like to see as a result of that global stock take potentially some agreement on sectoral measures that countries could build into those new national targets. Things like phasing out unabated fossil fuel consumption, tripling renewable energy production and doubling energy efficiency. Those are things that are in discussion right now. If those were in the decision text, I would see that as really important progress. Catherine Harrison, it's always good to hear your thoughts. I always appreciate you so much. Thank you. You're very welcome. Catherine Harrison is a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia. And as you heard her reference there, this year's COP Summit is happening in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, a major oil-producing country. And it's all happening against the backdrop of the Israel-Hamas war, as well as the ongoing war in Ukraine. Simon Dalby studies how climate, geopolitics, and security relate to one another. He is a professor emeritus at Wilfrid Laurier University and fellow at the Balsillie School of International Affairs. Simon, good morning to you. Good morning. This year, for the first time ever, this COP is holding a, quote, Relief, Recovery and Peace Day. It's being billed as a discussion of peace and conflict as it relates to climate change. What are you hoping might come out of these discussions? Well, it's a step in the right direction because obviously in areas where there's serious conflict going on, it makes dealing with climate change 
excuse me, dealing with climate change impacts as well as actually trying to do sensible development strategies, um, all the more difficult. Uh, if people are shooting at each other, trying to get them to do um, practical things to change how um, local environments are used, etc., becomes ever more difficult. So adding it into the uh, COP agenda is, is, a, is a really good move in the right direction. Um, it's not going to solve climate problems. Um, we have to understand that uh, at the heart of them are issues of using fuel um, rather than uh, living electrically. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, it does help because um, we're in well into discussions now of how do we adapt um, uh, our societies to deal both with climate change and also to make sure that we don't make climate change worse um, and not being preoccupied with um, combat and um, refugees and all the related disruptions clearly um, will clearly help. Yeah, there's always conflict in our world. Um, but these last uh, couple of years, you know, I don't have to tell anyone who's listening. There are major wars ongoing in Europe, the Middle East, um, Africa, when we look at Ukraine, uh, Gaza and Sudan. And we don't talk as much about the connection between the environmental toll and conflict. Um, Simon Dalby, what is the impact of these past couple of years on our planet? It, there's, the impacts are many. Um, there's the obvious stuff if you're blowing things up and, and um, poisoning uh, uh, rivers, as happened with you know broken dams, sending all sorts of, of, of um, chemicals into strange places. Uh, those kinds of disruptions are very obvious. It's also a matter of the resources that are being mobilized to build weapons aren't being mobilized to build solar panels and windmills. Mm. Um, so it, it cuts both ways. There's, of course, a long history of concern about war and preparations for war, um, causing environmental damage. Indeed, going back to the 1960s, it was concerns about strontium uh, radiation spreading around the world from nuclear tests that in many ways got a lot of people thinking about the, the planet as a single ecological entity and led, of course, to the the test ban treaty in the 1960s which um, stopped um, atmospheric testing of, of nuclear weapons um, beyond that 1970s was all agent orange vietnam and the destruction of, of, of southeast asia as a result of american air force activities there leading subsequently to an environmental modification treaty where um, one was banned from using environmental modification techniques as a weapon of war um, 1980s, we were worried about nuclear winter, and again, the potential for a major conflict to, to mess up the climate became very clear in that discussion now about 40 years ago. Um, I think we need to recognize that there's been military concerns right the way through the discussions about environment with links that uh, are germane today, not least because one of the things that, of course, the COP probe, uh, the whole COP programs, um, the, the program of COPs is what I'm trying to say, mm. um, over the last um, a few decades has usually ignored is the emissions from the military sector. Mm. Uh, jet planes um, and big naval task forces, never mind Abrams tanks that use how many um, uh, gallons per mile, um, uh, they're very wasteful uh, and mostly they have not been counted. They have been simply excluded from the evaluations. And so we need to stop and think about how do we get the military sector also um, into the discussion because military emissions have to come down along with all sorts of other emissions if we're serious about getting a handle on climate change. 
Let's talk um, specifically a bit about um, the Israel-Hamas war, because this particular conflict is happening in an area that has long been recognized as being climate vulnerable. Um, of course, we don't know when this war will end, but what do, you, what do you think the environmental fallout of this war will be for, for Gaza and Palestinians? Um, it's <clears throat> Well, it's hard to speculate. It depends on how long it goes and just how much more destruction happens in Gaza. Um, modern warfare is about uh, jet fuel and all those kinds of things that I've already mentioned, but it's also about very sophisticated explosives that have got strange chemicals in them. It's also about blowing up um, uh, buildings and equipment which burns, and of course, uh, the, all sorts of plastics and strange chemicals are part and parcel of our lives, leaving residues that it's going to take some folks a long time to, to figure figure out. Uh, one of the things that struck me about about Gaza um, and climate, of course, is that the um, uh, desperate situation in the hospitals in Gaza, uh, because they were running out of fuel, my immediate thoughts, of course, is that fuel is at the heart of um, so many of our insecurities, not just climate change, um, but the supply um, disruptions that come in all sorts of conflicts. We saw this panic in Germany um, when there was concern about Russian gas supplies being cut off. Uh, we saw it, of course, when the Russian tanks um, ran out of fuel trying to get to Kiev back yet last year. But we're also now seeing the vulnerability of Palestinian societies when the Israelis won't let the fuel tanks in or the fuel trucks in to fill the tanks for the hospitals. My immediate thought is, well, if you actually were serious about um, climate change in Gaza, getting solar panels on those roofs um, and a few batteries in the basement would keep the operating um, theatres running regardless. It would also, of course, um, change the finances because one of the things we're all vulnerable to is, is fluctuating fuel prices. And fuel is the heart of the climate change problem, heart of insecurity in its multiple different forms. So tackling that is something that would link environment, conflict, security um, in ways that would allow us to both tackle climate change and the, the, the difficulties that come from the vulnerabilities we all have to, to fuel supplies. Getting off fuel um, is absolutely crucial to solving the climate change uh, problem, but also it will make numerous societies um, more secure in other ways too. Mm. So we have got a potential here for thinking about sort of win-win-win solutions if we focus clearly on the, on the problem um, of fuel supplies and burning them mm. as, as key to our vulnerabilities in numerous different ways. How do you make that case, though, Simon? The financial costs of global conflict are, amass, the, are, are immense. Yeah. The funds needed for climate solutions um, are immense. How do you make the case for climate funding at a time like this? Well, I mean, it's very simple. If you're spending money on missiles, you're not spending it on the, that money could be spent on on, uh, on on batteries and solar panels. Um, I mean, in that sense, it's the old argument about guns versus um, butter, or as I like to say, missiles versus margarine. Um, the, the the point is that uh, there are some certain discretionary funds that governments have. Um, active diplomacy and attempt to head off um, conflict may should. Um, free up funds to be spent on more useful things than, than yet more extremely expensive killing machines because weapons these days are expensive because they're so sophisticated. And I think that that's one of the larger policy debates that really needs to be had. 
And one of the good things over the last couple of months that didn't get many headlines was, um, you know, despite the ongoing arguments between China and the U.S. about all sorts of things, that summit recently, um, you know, there was an agreement they would go on cooperating on climate issues because both the U.S. policymakers and the Chinese policymakers do realize that in the long run, um, climate change is a major issue, um, one that needs to be tackled um, in, in, in all sorts of different ways. So despite the sparring geopolitically, they are still claiming that they are willing to continue cooperating on, on climate. And that at least is, is, is good news. But ultimately, it comes down to um, how do we think about security? Um, what kind of policies give us what kind of security? And weapons, um, uh, fuel bills, um, getting off um, dependence on fuel bills and the cost of rapidly fluctuating prices of fuel in many parts of the world makes us all more secure in, in, in numerous different ways. And that's really what we do need to think about. In terms of Gaza, um, uh, that, uh, you know, in the heat of the moment, um, how you resolve that and convince Netanyahu to, to, to back off at the moment. Um, uh, that's a major issue for, for diplomacy. Um, you know, one of the headlines a few weeks ago was saying, well, the Egyptians were getting very worried that this was going to um, disrupt the gas supplies that they were using from the region to um, power some of their electric uh, grid. There's all sorts of other issues about who has access to the gas off the, off the shore of Gaza, um, is that revenue for a future Palestinian state or um, is Israel going to appropriate all that? All of these are, are big issues hmm. that are tied into that. But let's just make, you know, stay focused on what it is we need to keep the, gener keep the generators running or wait a minute, maybe we don't need to keep the generators running. Maybe we can put um, solar panels on the roofs. Um, and, and get away from this dependency on, on, on fuel and make everybody more secure in those hospitals um, as a result. It's that shift in thinking in terms of, of the advantages, the benefits of moving away from fuel towards a, um, new renewable energy. That's mm. what to be an absolutely key part of how we rethink security in, in its numerous forms. Okay, Simon, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Simon Dalby is a professor emeritus at Wilfrid Laurier University, as well as a fellow at the Balsillie School of International Affairs. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. So back in the early part of 2021, a new term burst onto the scene, NFT, short for non-fungible tokens. They're unique digital collectibles. They could be songs, GIFs, or GIFs tweets that suddenly became the hottest crypto trading asset around. At their height, more than $2.8 billion U.S. worth of NFTs were being traded monthly. Well, now in 2023, most of them are worthless. But there is value in the story of the NFT for all of us. And it's one of many money-like things that Rachel O'Dwyer explores in her new book. It is called Tokens, the Future of Money in the Age of the Platform. Rachel's a lecturer in digital cultures at the National College of Art and Design in Dublin. Rachel, good morning. Good morning, Pia. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about NFTs in just a moment. But before we get into all of that, Tell me for you and your own interest in digital currencies, how that began. As I understand it, it began with a payment system in Africa called M-Pesa. So connect those dots for me. How did mobile phone payments make you question the, the nature of money? 
Exactly. I was studying um, the economy of mobile networks um, about 12 years ago, and I came across a payment system called M-Pesa, which is very, very popular in Africa. So I suppose in the face of hyperinflation, where there wasn't a lot of access to readily available cash, people started using phone credit as a de facto currency. So it's a way to sort of send payments to one another. So instead of using phone credit to top up your phone and make phone calls, boyfriends are sending it as gift to people. People were sending it as a way to pay bills. Uh, shopkeepers were using it as a way to give people change. And it raised questions for me then that, you know, if this was money, uh, mobile phone operators and mobile network operators were banks, then um, what did that mean, I guess, for the future of money? And that's really where I suppose my research took off. And, and that's that's where the book took off. You have used the word money about three or four times so far in reference to M-Pesa. And, you know, it's a question kids always ask, what is money beyond this paper or coin thing that you give me? How does an average economist, and I'm not calling you an average economist, but how do you also <laughs> define it? How do, you, how do you see money? I mean, I guess economists define money in, in quite a straightforward, maybe kind of quite a boring way. Uh, there's three straightforward things that something has to be to be money. So one is a unit of account. One is a store of value and one is a means of exchange. So something that you can use to exchange for other things, something you can use to sort of compare to other things to figure out how much it's worth and something that holds value. So, you know, gold is a, is a, is a good store of value, for example. So money tends to have to be these three things in order to be money. And where do tokens fit in? So tokens is sort of a term for all the, the moneyish things that circulate alongside state-backed money. Things like um, Bitcoin, book vouchers, Amazon gift cards, food stamps, phone credit, Twitter cash tag, game currencies, and NFTs. So they're all things, I suppose, that maybe have some of these functions, or but, but, but also potentially have other kinds of functions as well. Hmm. Okay, so to go way, way, way back before we had currencies, you consider everything money that's sort of like, I have six chickens, Rachel, you have two horses, I'll give you my six chickens for, you know, one of the horses. That would be a bad deal, by the way, on your end. But th th that's things that we barter and trade, frankly. Yes, exactly. But when we talk about tokens nowadays, they seem tech dependent, right? Whether you talk about M-Pesa or Bitcoin or anything like that. But we have used tokens in the past as well. Absolutely. I mean, what I think happens today is that we, you know, increasingly hear about tokens in the same breath, obviously, as non-fungible tokens or as Bitcoin. But these sorts of tokens have always, you know, ghosted the real economy. So as long as we've had sort of state-backed money, we've also had these things that are kind of money-ish, you know, and things that, that, that weren't quite official money. During the 20th century, for example, men were potentially, you know, employed in kind of wage labor and were maybe paid in, you know, very visible dollars and had bank accounts. Women were often paid in invisible dollars. So they maybe got by in um, the allowances that they were given by their husbands, but also in various other kinds of invisible kinds of tokens like um, store uh, allowances, for example, or in um, postal orders or in various different kinds of informal kinds of token economies or even in treats. Um, a lot of workers historically were paid in a particular kind of a token that was called scrip. So instead of being paid in official kind of money or tokens, they were paid in a informal 
token that was issued by their employer that could only be redeemed with your employer and your employer decided how much that was worth. And so there's kind of a very broad history of these sort of informal tokens that kind of ran alongside, I guess, the um, formal monetary economy. But what we're seeing today is, I guess, that they are coming to the fore and increasingly, like M-Pesa, they're kind of riding the rails of information and communication technologies. You know, they're being issued by platforms like Amazon, like Facebook. The the money-ish world has changed quite rapidly. So, you know, I think we can use lots of starting points, but if we look back to 2008, the financial crisis, you said that the value we put on money depends on social consensus and trust. And I think that so much trust was broken in 2008. Um, you work in Ireland. Um, I don't have to tell you how on the precipice Ireland was yeah. during 2008. But academics told you at that time or shortly after that time that the financial crisis, quote, broke the taboo of money. What do you think they meant by that? And what was the result? Well, I think for me, it was really interesting graduating into a recession in 2008, up until that particular moment. And even at that particular moment, I thought about money in terms of the haves and have nots. I thought about money in terms of whether or not I could actually pay my rent or buy food. But I never actually stopped to really think about what money was or what it did. Um, It was just this sort of invisible substance because it seemed to work in a particular way. I think for a lot of people, when the financial crisis happened, it sort of broke their trust in that monetary system. And that's sort of what I mean by, I guess, the financial crisis, breaking the taboo in money, breaking people's trust in the monetary system. I guess since the 1970s, our money hasn't been backed by any physical value. You know, we have a fiat currency that that's backed by our collective trust in the state, in that system. But I think from 2008 onwards was a moment where a lot of people stopped and, and, and started to sort of reconsider what money actually was and what it did and whether or not it could work better. And I think that is why 2008 was a moment when you started to see these experiments in money, money coming to the fore from Bitcoin to the resurgence of things like experiments with time banking or universal basic income. And for me, that was very much tied up with the with the financial crisis. And, and the other consequence in the past 15 years, again, if we use 2008 as sort of the, the starting point of where things started to get really upended, at least in terms of trust, is a segment of society doesn't trust central bankers, central banks, the things that we've always sort of relied on in in democracies. What are the consequences for democracies like Canada's when people stop trusting in their currency and in banks and in central institutions, um, the central bank, the Bank of Canada? I feel like there's been a much kind of longer history maybe of of this sort of suspicion of, of trust in the state that's maybe just becoming more mainstream with the rise of crypto. Like there's a very, very long history of this sort of anarchist distrust in the state that we see in experiments with alternative forms of money. I mean, Web3, this sort of movement, I guess, that's been percolating since 2020 around crypto, that's about sort of removing the state from money. Is It's really repeating sort of ideas that have been around since sort of the 1800s. Joseph Proudhon, for example, um, who's, you know, one of the fathers of anarchism. And, you know, apart from the kind of archaic language that's being used there, he's talking very much about like removing the parasitic middleman from government. 
these ideas have sort of been around for a very, very, very long time. And I think what's striking is that, you know, while on one hand, these, these sort of men, and they were always sort of men, preached the end of power, the kinds of societies and communities that they built, really they allowed different sorts of power and privilege to sort of flow unchecked. So often women or people of colour often had no say. And I think the same can often be said for the sort of very brofied politics of Web3 today. So they're preaching, a, you know, decentralization. They're preaching sort of a, a, a shift away from the state, a shift away from democracy. But then all that really happens, I suppose, is that you're, you're sort of making space for new kinds of power to emerge and new kinds of power then that goes unchecked. So even though maybe there's sort of lip service to uh, a move away from the state or a sort of a move away from that sort of model as, as being somehow more egalitarian, I think all you're seeing is then the rise of these sort of platforms of these more actually toxic forms of politics in their place. Let's talk about crypto. Um, you know, it wasn't so long ago, a handful or so years ago, most people when they heard the word crypto didn't know what it meant, weren't investing in it, were very, very skeptical, if not cynical about it. But I guess the flip side of that is that countries, I think there's more than 100 that are currently exploring, piloting, starting to use kind of digital versions of their currency. Canada's still in the exploratory end of this. But if you look at China, they have the digital yuan, which is their their money, their traditional money, but it's one of the leading central bank digital currencies. They're, they're known as CBDCs in the world. Built to replace cash, to improve the Chinese central bank's payment system and provide a risk-free alternative to commercial platforms. You've called the digital yuan concerning. What's concerning you? Uh, absolutely. I mean, in China, there's a very, very, uh, I suppose, strong legacy for digital payments. So um, Alipay and WeChat Pay are two incredibly powerful and popular payments apps that have been around for over a decade in China and that are used, you know, by all citizens. You have, you know, grandmothers using their phones to pay for groceries. So it's it's, it's very, very common. And sort of over the last sort of 15 years, there was sort of a push where these companies realized that all the data about you know, what people were buying with their phones could actually be used to do things like underwrite credit uh, or even to figure out sort of what kind of a citizen somebody was. Cash obviously is, you know, an anonymous bearer instrument that has no identity tied to it. The digital UN is a, a digital token that is tied specifically to your identity, but also potentially has other kinds of strings attached to it. Because this money is digital, because these tokens are digital, you can also program all sorts of conditions into it. So not only is the token surveyed, you know, allowing you to, to see what somebody is buying and survey their transactions, you can also uh, decide sort of what kind of transactions are possible, whether or not somebody can purchase a plane ticket, for example, whether or not they can register for a particular school. So there's all sorts of choke points then that can actually be built into transactivity with these digital currencies. And this is why central bank digital currencies, I suppose, are so worrying because they have, I suppose, these possibilities for creating money, not only with the ability to express value, but also to express all kinds of values. You know, if you look at something like SNAP benefits in the US, where food stamps are now electronically provisioned, they uh, are tied to a user's identity and they also are preventing users from buying particular goods 
So you can buy cold deli meats as far as I know, but not hot food. You can buy particular kinds of um, food items, but you can't buy hygiene products, for example. If you're just joining us on this Sunday morning, I'm speaking uh, with Rachel O'Dwyer, who's a lecturer in digital currencies at the National College of Art and Design in Dublin. We're talking about money, <laughs> I say, and money-ish things, uh, Rachel, depending on how people look at this. Um, let us talk about NFTs. I feel like the story of them tells us something about where we are in the trajectory of money in the world. So just for people who might have forgotten what NFTs are, um, there was this bubble in 2021. Part of the appeal of these non-fungible tokens, NFTs, was that they were kind of neat and cool. Like there was the Bored Ape series or Crypto Kitties. There's a status that came with them, sold at big auction houses, places like Sotheby's, some for millions of dollars. But for young investors, Rachel, you write, NFTs offered the opportunity of ownership in a world where it's more and more difficult to own anything. That's what's so interesting to me. It gets beyond the like, why would anyone pay this kind of money for this ape painting. But for you, this the story of NFT represents something bigger in society. What were those kinds of NFT collectors trying to capture as you see it? For me, it felt like the push towards NFTs and towards crypto in general, particularly around the pandemic, was very much fueled by, um, I guess what I'd call financial nihilism. So we talked earlier about how maybe the rise of Bitcoin and crypto in 2008 was pushed by this moment of crisis that had people questioning what money was. And I also wondered then if maybe the pandemic and the kind of sense of perma crisis in 2020 didn't sort of also push a speculative bubble around NFTs at that particular moment. And um, so I've been researching blockchain and NFTs since about 2013. So there have been experiments with art and blockchain around since then. And I couldn't figure out, like, why are people suddenly so interested in these pictures, as you say, of, of, of board apes or, you know, crypto kitties when they've been around for a long time? And it seemed as though maybe for a lot of people, these were sort of desperate bets on a broken future. You know, as you mentioned at the very, very start, there was a lot of people who were, you know, sitting at home. All cultures become online culture. People are on furlough from their jobs. Some people maybe have um, savings because they're not going out. Or they're not, you know, they don't have anything related really to do with their money. And in the absence also of sports or online gambling and also changes around the regulation in retail trading and investing, a lot of people got into investing in crypto or in NFTs. And it seemed like, you know, maybe where there had been these sort of legitimate paths to what we might call the good life in terms of, you know, that you go to college, you work hard, you get your job, you buy your house. And I don't want to generalize. Obviously, there's different sorts of economic conditions in different countries and across different classes. But just kind of very broadly, it seemed like some of those pathways that maybe millennials and Gen Zs have been taught were open to them were starting to feel like they'd closed down, like we'd been sold uh, kind of a worthless token. And, um, you know, if, if there isn't a clear pathway, then why not throw your money at a pair of virtual mics and hope that you might win a down payment for a house? That was sort of what I was reading. You know, I had students talking to me about 
betting a month's rent in the hope that they'd win three about trying to buy a little bit of space to make their art. Yeah, and I I suppose not much has changed in sort of that feeling given the affordability crisis in our country, in the US and in much of the world. People can't afford to buy or pay for rent or a mortgage, at least in our country. So I suppose the argument could go, at least you can own something. If If I can't own a house, I can own some crypto. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty grim indictment of our like economic situation. I want to pick up on that, because as you've been documenting all the ways we're exchanging these money-like things and sort of the state of the world, the, the social, the, the trust issues, the economic mm-hmm. issues, in the end, sort of what's given, been happening over the last, I know it's been longer than this, but like, again, if we use 2008 as a starting point, 15 years, do you see this as a net negative or a net positive development for the world? I think it is so difficult. What I found really compelling, I suppose, about this space is there's obviously there's a lot of very, very negative issues. I see tokens as being this very worrying sort of regulatory sleight of hand. They sort of allow platforms like Amazon, you know, like Twitter, like Facebook to sort of act as as banks and act as employers without actually having to officially sort of take uh, responsibility uh, for being either of these. Um, and so that's very, very worrying. But I also find them quite compelling because I feel like because the tokens are sort of more than money, because they have these sort of spaces for quite creative expression and for people to do quite like interesting things. Like in the summer, there was this sort of breakout moment where a streamer called Pinky Doll, for example, was being paid a lot of money to um, pretend to be a non-playable game character. And people were giving her virtual gifts on TikTok to do this. And one way of looking at that is that it's extremely dystopian. I suppose another way is that it's, you know, it's one of these sort of online subcultures where people are being incredibly um, creative with, uh, with value and with what money can be. And I still feel like in this sort of money-ish space that there are kind of possibilities, I suppose, for reimagining uh, what value can be sort of now and in the future. Rachel, it's been good to, to hear you explain all this. Um, sometimes this information comes fast and furious at us when we're talking about tokens and NFTs and all these things. So thank you for explaining it all to us and helping us understand it better. Appreciate it. Thanks a million. Rachel O'Dwyer is a lecturer in digital culture at Dublin's National College of Art and Design. She's also the author of the book Tokens. And with that, we've come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Our producers are Sarah Joyce Battersby, Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Pete Mitten, and Aronde Williams. We had additional help this week from audio technician Emily Kiervasio. Our senior producer is Danielle Grogan. Our executive producers are Brian Colton and Donna Dingwall. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine podcast. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.